0: The presenting partner of Sober Stories is Liars Non-Alcoholic Spirits. That's Liars as in L-Y-R-E, like the Australian lyre bird, which can mimic just about any sound. Like that fancy Aussie bird, Liars was created to replicate and replicate well as many different alcoholic spirits as possible, allowing us to drink our way. Now that the sun is shining and the birds are chirping, plan ahead for your next spring barbecue by packing a cooler of spectacularly crafted non-alcoholic cocktails to have in hand when they ask you what you'd like to drink. Liars has your sunshine days covered with their pre-mixed beverage line. They're easy, festive, and made for the season. With five different opportunities for celebration, the Classico's our favorite, Liars Can Selections are the Sober Stories team's go-to for fresh, alcoholic-free sips. Head over to liars.com and use code SOBERSTORIES1010, that's the number 10, the word 10, for 10% off your purchase. Liars gives you the freedom to drink your way, to not just provide an alternative to those who don't wish to imbibe alcohol, but to ensure that everyone can enjoy the mirth and the merriment of a soiree or shindig. Welcome to Sober Stories, a podcast dedicated to the power and change that can come from really, really great storytelling. We believe that stories are a massively transformational medium. When we can see ourselves in someone's story, when we share our own story, that's when the magic happens. Here, we tell stories of folks all across the sober spectrum with hope, honesty, inspiration, and probably a few sparkling water jokes. I'm your host, Beth Bowen, and it's a huge honor to be Chief Story Steward around here. With our guests, we pull back the curtain on the good, the bad, and sometimes the downright ugly of what it looks like to ditch the booze, changing the world one podcast episode at a time. Y'all ready? Happy Friday, Sober Stories crew. I'm so glad you're here tuning into another episode of our show. You're going to love today's conversation. Jill Teets of Sober Powered joined me for a really great conversation about her path to sobriety. You'll notice we totally lost track of time. That's really how good it was. Jill Teets is the host of the Sober Powered podcast and works as a biochemist in the Boston area. We're going to toot that horn for Jill because she got a little shy about how badass her work is. When she quit drinking in 2019, she dedicated herself to learning about alcohol's influence on the brain and how it can cause addiction. She used that knowledge to free herself from the shame she had about being unable to control her drinking. And today she educates and empowers others to assess their relationship with alcohol. You can find Jill creating content on Instagram, YouTube, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Jill and I dug into some really great topics, especially what she calls the drink, hate yourself, drink cycle that so many of us find ourselves in. A quick content warning for you, Jill discusses her experience with suicidal thoughts while drinking. As always, if that is a tender subject for you, you're always welcome to skip to the next episode. After you get today's episode a listen, tag Jill and let us know what your biggest takeaway was. Here we go. All right, Sober Stories crew, thank y'all so much for tuning into another episode today. I've got a really great conversation with Jill Teets of Sober Powered. Jill, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. All
0: right, give us the story of you, kind of the high notes, who you are, who you do life with, uh, where you are, what you do. I'm very curious about that one.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so I live in the Boston area with my husband and cat. Uh, my husband and I both work in biotech, so we both do lab jobs.
0: Mm. Lab jobs. I feel like you're like under underplaying the fact that you're a biochemist is what you are. <laughs> like no big yeah. deal. A biochemist who works in cancer research, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I try not to uh, hype it up too much. I like to be as humble as possible, Mm-mm. but Mm-mm. it is a unique job, I guess. Here it's not. Like a mm. lot of people I know – work in biotech but in like real life I guess not that many people do yeah no not that many people do
0: and in this space and in my world we hype up women especially who are like brilliant and brainy and doing amazing things so there's no need to be humble in this space but I hear you what's your cat's name Luna. Luna. Okay. Well, we might be interrupted by some dogs here as well. So we've got cats, dogs. <laughs> I'm babysitting my, my mother-in-law's dog right now, so he might make an appearance. But give us the story of you and alcohol. How did how did Sober Powered, how did you come to be in this space now?
1: So my first drink ever was when I was 18. Hmm. And so I didn't drink in high school because I was bullied and i okay. never had the opportunity to drink so i was never invited to anything mm. so it was very protective i'm um, now in my 30s i'm very grateful yeah <laughs> for that experience um, cuz if i had started even younger then like wow who knows but mm. so my first drink was at 18 i was on a cruise with my family and we were cruising in the bahamas and the legal drinking age was 18 okay so i legally had permission to drink. I asked my parents if it was okay if I had a glass of wine. Everybody said it was okay. The Mm -hmm. law, my parents. You're like, I checked all my boxes. (laughs) Yep. So I had a drink and I think I always thought that when adults consume alcohol, it's just a nice adult drink. Mm Mm-hmm that they enjoy for the taste and the classiness, and then move on. Mm -hmm. But if you were a loser who couldn't control yourself, you got drunk. Mm -hmm. And I got a little buzz off like half a glass of wine, probably not even a buzz. I got like a flutter in my head. (laughs) And I was instantly hit with so much shame. I thought I was a bad person, who because I had that flutter, I thought I did something wrong, and I then lectured my brother who was mm. 16 at the time. Never drink. Promise <laughs> me that you'll never do this. It's not worth it. Mm. And we laughed about it for years, but yeah. it was like really telling mm. of, you know, where my story would go, but after that I didn't really drink for basically all of college. I was more concerned with being uh, super thin. Mm. That was my first love. Mm. Um, and because I was so bullied, I didn't really put myself out there socially. So I went to a party school that had like frat houses, and but I never went because I'd never learned how to like socialize with people mm. because I had never been invited to anything. So I mm-hmm. just studied and you know, filled up my time with that. And then when I went to grad school, I was the only one that didn't drink. And that was where it really started. Mm. The professors used to party with us. Hmm. There'd be parties in the school. They got one year this like ice luge thing that you like pour <laughs> the shot in my yep. school. Yep, I know. And the you're professors about. were at the party and and we would go out to the bar every night like after working in the lab all day and and I was the only one that wasn't drinking. And I Mm. thought no one is going to like me if I don't do this too. Mm. And that was like my whole thing. I didn't really have much interest in drinking because of my experience at 18 and because being thin was such a priority for me. Mm. And I knew that you know, losing the maximum amount of weight that you can lose and drinking alcohol, like, didn't mix. But I really thought that I would have no friends again and and all that. So I started just ordering what the person next to me would order. Hmm. And then it took a couple times because they were ordering Bud Lights. So it took a couple, like, (laughs) outings.
0: Come on, y'all. Can't you get something better than this?
1: (laughs) Anything else? Anything else. Um, (laughs) But I got my first real buzz on and then I got it. Hmm. Then I was like, I understand why people drink and hmm. why they're not as interested in, you know, being thin or being healthy or not getting hmm. the drunchies or being hungover all the time. I was like, I got it now. This makes perfect sense. This hmm. is the best thing that's ever existed. And that was it. There was no control. There was no moderation. Hmm. Um very quickly, like I began humiliating myself like instantly, not the mm. first time, but like maybe the third time. Yeah, I just had no understanding of how, you know, the quote normal people drink mm. and I went overboard every single time, sick in public, embarrassing myself, getting in fights with my now husband. Yeah. Yeah all kinds of stuff and then that's when the shame started too why mm. can't you control yourself why are you such a loser mm. everybody else is fine like why are you doing this and um and then i just decided i'll moderate mm-hmm. i'll just try to moderate you know my tolerance is just way too high mm. so about 1 year into drinking i became a daily drinker and then I took a job teaching, which is very high stress. Yeah. And that was like my main reason to drink was mm-hmm. because I learned in grad school that when you drink, your stress goes away. Yeah. And I had stress every day, so I drank every day. And I had – by like year two, I had a ridiculous tolerance. It was mm-hmm. so high. I was like getting drunk every night, like blacking out constantly. and. That was when I said, I should moderate. You're drinking too much. You should just moderate and drink less. And it seemed perfectly reasonable. Yeah. What a great solution. <laughs> <laughs> and only then I'm like, well, you never moderated ever. So like you don't even know what, mm-hmm. what that's like. <laughs>
0: but I, But I get it. It makes perfect sense. This is the solution to this new problem that has arisen
1: yeah, because I can't give it up. It's mm. the most important thing in my life at this point. It's the mm. only thing that I look forward to in my day. And I just suffer through the day so that I can get home and drink. Like I used to call alcohol my fuel. Mm. and I used to tell the other teachers that like alcohol helped me like live, like get through life. Mm-hmm. And it was the only thing that helped me with kid stress from, you know, the students that I yeah. taught. And I, you know, I blamed everything on everything else, not my precious alcohol. Sure. And I even, like you introduced me as a biochemist and now I'm talking about teaching, but I even switched my career so that I could keep alcohol around. Like I thought Mm. if only teaching wasn't so stressful, I wouldn't have to drink this much. It's Mm. teaching's fault. Yeah. So I literally switched careers. It's like the geographical cure, but yeah. with like <laughs> with <laughs> jobs. <careers. laughs> and I thought it would fix it. I really did. I thought if I could just have a better job where I'm not stressed out all the time, I wouldn't have to drink so much. Mm-hmm. And I even went to a therapist when I switched jobs. I was like, how do you know if you're an alcoholic? Mm-hmm. That's what I asked the therapist. And she was like, well, I don't know. And and we talked about like what an alcoholic is. And I yeah. said, you know, I don't drink in the morning and like right. all those things. At least I don't drink in the morning and mm-hmm. I have this great job. And I did all of that. And then um, I t- she encouraged me to take a week off. Mm-hmm. And I like freaked out, like, a week? What am I going to do? I couldn't even understand what people did with their time. Mm. They didn't sit around and drink all day. So I took the week off, and I did it easily. And I, we went to a grilled cheese festival, which we would never do normally. <laughs> Amazing, though. Like, where do I find it's one so of those around here? <laughs> I know, right? And I got to do stuff I never would do. We went to a restaurant we would never go to because we wouldn't want to spend that much money on food. And then I determined I must not be an alcoholic because taking a week off was easy for me. So I went back to drinking every single day. Mm,
0: yeah. But the
1: reason that the week was easy is because I didn't want to be an alcoholic. Yeah. So doing the week without alcohol meant I wasn't an alcoholic. So I was highly motivated mm, to complete the experiment this week. successful. Yep. Yeah. No no need to, you know, stop drinking or, mm-hmm. or drink less. Because the goal was never to stop. The goal was to drink every day, but then just stop at two Mm -hmm. and not get super drunk every day. Mm -hmm. So I would tell myself, like, I don't need to take breaks because that's not my goal. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't – not drinking for a day doesn't help. Mm -hmm. The goal is to drink and learn how to stop once I start. Yeah. Yeah. So if I take a break, how is that helping me with my goal? So (laughs) I (laughs) – is this is I this I just an had impressive practice. Yeah, this
0: is an impressive system.
1: Yeah, I really, I spent a lot of time thinking about it basically every second of every day. Yeah, I can um, tell you're a scientist. <laughs> I analyzed it, I researched mm-hmm. it. I used to like research how do you moderate your drinking mm. and come up with all these strategies and see what other people did. And yeah, I would literally sit and research it every single morning after I didn't moderate my drinking again. Mm. And, <laughs> And then I'd be like, I know what I can do. I have a new <laughs> hypothesis. try something else. Yeah. Yep. And I would read all those articles that come out and say how alcohol is healthy. Mm. And I would send them to my husband and say, see, mm-hmm. this is why I need to keep drinking wine because mm. wine drinkers are healthier. Yeah. See? Yeah. And I spent so much time doing that. And I held my life together besides it. I had the job that impresses people. I have a master's degree. I'm married. I have a house that I live in. I don't have a DUI. Like I had all these reasons why things were fine. But on the inside, every single night, I was getting drunk and hating myself. Mm. And I, I used to force myself to stay awake and think about how much I hated myself. Wow. Like I would, I would get drunk and then, you know, you fall asleep and then jolt awake at like 3 o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. with anxiety. And at that point, I would force myself to stay awake till the sun came up mm. thinking like you're a loser. Wow. Why do you always do this? You're a bad person. Mm. That was what I used to say to myself a lot, that I was bad
0: mm-hmm. because
1: I couldn't control the amount that I drank. Mm. And that's ultimately why I ended up stopping is because that those like nighttime – hate sessions Mm -hmm. became so powerful that I became super suicidal. Mm -hmm. So the nighttime sessions would even like spill over into the next day and I would get up and I would, you know, take a shower or whatever, get ready for work. And I would look in the mirror as I'm trying to do my makeup for work and I would just repeat. Like my husband's in the shower. He has like no idea I'm doing this, but I would repeat over and over I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. And I would make myself cry. And that's mm. like how I would start my day. Wow. And like, that makes you really not want to drink. And, yeah. <laughs> and like, yeah. that makes you want to have two drinks and stop mm. when you start your day that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And it was until I couldn't ignore it anymore that I tried to do something about it. And my solution was. To take 90 days off. Okay. Because 30 I decided wasn't enough. So 90 was special. That's a long time. That will reset my tolerance, Mm -hmm. surely. That will cure me of my bad habit. And then I will be able to drink normally.
0: Yeah, normally.
1: Yep. So -hmm. that's how I went into it. And it was really hard. I was around alcohol a lot. I used to go to happy hours and like cry afterwards for work. And then I realized that day 91 was my birthday. Oh, man. It's a sign, right? Yeah. From the universe. It's a sign that I am going to be able to moderate that Mm. I did the right thing. And um, I did actually moderate after that for the Mm. first time in history, the first and only time. (laughs) Um, I would have two glasses of wine on Saturday night and I didn't want any more. I didn't have cravings. I naturally stopped. I went from drinking seven days a week down to one. Mm. And I was like, wow, look at me. Look at me moderating. Mm. But what I was doing at the same time was I was isolating. I wasn't being social. I was not going to parties or or being around my friends because I knew I wouldn't be able to control the amount that I drank. Yeah, and so I was very isolated this whole time, just doing this two drinks a week thing, and it lasted for two months. And then we went on vacation, mm. and we went on a cruise where we had the drink package. Mm. And I thought, you know, it's a special occasion. It's vacation. The goal is to drink. Yeah, the goal is to drink on special occasions and. I'll just drink how I want and come home and go back to my two drinks a week, little thing and i it was my first time in Europe. It was the cruise that I always wanted to go on my whole life. Mm. We started in Barcelona and we stayed there for a few days and then we went to um Naples. And we hiked up Mount Vesuvius, wow. we saw Pompeii, then we went to Rome, then we mm. went to Florence, and then we went to Monaco and France mm. and like all these amazing places. And I cannot even look at the pictures. Oh, man. I humiliated myself all over Europe. <laughs> you toured Europe? Yeah, that was my tour. I humiliated myself. Just everywhere I went, I the one thing I wanted to do was climb Mount Vesuvius. I climbed it with a hangover of death.
0: Like hangover I thought I was going to
1: die. I was so nauseous. I feel like there's something symbolic so about I ruined being it.
0: hungover on Vesuvius and all of the the ghosts of the past <laughs> there haunting you with the hangover. Right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was extra bad because, yeah. because of where I was yeah. and the Italian heat and Ugh. sun on me mm. Yeah, so I can't even look at the pictures and yeah. then I came home and could not moderate anymore. Then I mm. was right back to my normal drinking. Yeah. Which I then realized later. And then I had to, you know, ruin my life for a few more months. Yeah. Suicidal thoughts came back really bad. And then one night I realized like you're gonna get drunk and you're gonna do something about mm. the way that you're feeling and these horrible things that you're saying to yourself. Mm. And I realized like in that moment, like even though I felt like I'd completely lost my mind, I hated myself so much. I realized that like, I actually didn't want anything Mm. bad to happen to me.
0: Mm.
1: And that was when I was like, okay, you can never drink again. Mm -hmm. Cause the 90 days is what really taught me and I had to have that experience of doing the 90 days yeah. and then going back and seeing that, no, actually nothing's different Right. to believe it and mm. to finally get to that acceptance or I would have been chasing it forever. Like the one week, that wasn't really that long. Like mm-hmm. I was still in acute withdrawal. To mm-hmm. I didn't even have any benefits, Right. you know, right. besides the grilled cheese festival. <laughs> but if I had them. done, you know, right? If I had done 20 or 30, or 30 days or something then i could have said well that's not that long you know yeah. and i could have kept chasing it and chasing it but but 90 days is a really long time mm. and i saw like actually nothing changed at all you mm-hmm. had the illusion of change because you were so isolated and refusing to be around anyone but when you know reality came back there was no change i was drinking exactly the same as right before I stopped. And mm. that was what helped me accept like I only drink one way. Mm. There's no there's no like changing it. There's no improving it. Two drinks will always be a waste of my time mm. no matter what. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then that was when I stopped for mm. good. And that was just about two and a half years ago.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I saw your two and a half birthdays, May 9th. Mm-hmm. You know – Man, it's like really I, I have two pages of notes here because there's so much of that that's so powerful. And and I know you've shared about these suicidal thoughts in other spaces and other podcasts and on your social media. And I think, you know, I think that's really powerful to be able to for somebody else to hear you say, like this is what was happening in my brain. I think a lot of people experience alcohol use where on the outside or to the people in their life, perhaps, it's quote unquote, not that bad, but they have no idea what's happening on, on the inside. They have no idea what's happening with this internal dialogue and this self-talk and this self-worth. And, you know, you talk about these, these late night hate sessions and, and I, I think I've shared this story here before, but my rock bottom, I guess you could say, is I remember very vividly looking at the clock one night, it's about midnight and saying, I hate you to myself. And it was, you know, after a bottle of wine, maybe more than that. And I couldn't stop. And I was staying it past my husband at that point in time so that I could keep drinking longer. And the way my self-worth had deteriorated so deeply was was truly the rock bottom that I experienced and and I think that so much of this and and I want to ask you a little bit about this drink hate yourself drink cycle because I think that's really important and and that's what you call it but I think that so often we find ourselves using this substance and having these thought processes and when we're the only person experiencing this thought we're the only person validating this thought to ourselves it really perpetuates this idea of like I'm the only person in the world who can't do this. I'm a worthless trash human because of it. And then our brain's like, yeah, no, definitely. You're definitely that. And it's this vicious cycle that we can get into that can be really dangerous. And and, you know, I think that I, I appreciate you sharing the depth of how dangerous that became because I know that that is not only part of your story, but something somebody else needs to hear to realize like these thoughts are not truths these thoughts are not real. I mean they're they're real they are thoughts, but they are not the reality of the situation that you, every person listening to this is whole and worthy and deserves to have a, a, a life of abundance and riches and all of the goodness. Tell me more, you know, I think it's really interesting that you talked about this first time that you drank alcohol because talking about Italy, my very first well, no, not my first time drinking alcohol. I it was like my second I had one one trial in high school, but we were on vacation in Rome for my graduation trip. I was 18, legal there, did the same thing and I had like one of those like half bottles of wine, I think and I probably had one glass, maybe maybe two of it and got a little buzz on the first thing and it was very similar in that like, this is funny. This is, you know, a rite of passage. And one of the things I hear when you talk about like your immediate thought of like, oh, this is what, you know, losers do. This is what people who can't handle it do is how many stories we can go into this, both the drinking and then the not drinking with, and how many external stories about who does and doesn't handle or doesn't or doesn't experience addiction and who can or can't handle their alcohol and all of these things. And the other one that I was Writing down is this like this idea of no one's gonna like me. Like, if I don't drink alcohol, no one's gonna like me. And then on the other side of it, when we quit drinking, we have this thought of like, no one's gonna like me because I don't drink. How did you start to navigate some of those stories and untangle them in your own mind?
1: Yeah, the idea of being a loser and a bad person who couldn't control myself was so hard to break free of. And I Mm -hmm. still, struggle with it a little bit. And when I see something or, you know, some troll shows up on my page Mm. that implies or outright says that, you know, this is a choice, Mm. it's super triggering for me because if it is a choice, then I go to, well, therefore you're a loser who can't control yourself, Mm. who is not a strong person. So that one is really hard. And Mm. what helped me the most is the facts is mm. learning like I wanted to understand. So day one, you know, I just wanted mozzarella sticks and blankets. <laughs> I mean, I want and, that right
0: now to be to be fair. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> and like shows like the ultimatum and uh-huh. The Bachelor. Yeah, you know? totally. But day two, I woke up and I was like, okay, well now we're sober forever. Because uh, I committed to forever when I stopped. But mm. I wanted to understand like, is the stuff that you think the stuff that like society tells us that we're Mm. a bunch of losers. Is that true? Mm -hmm. So I started reading about it and I wanted to understand like, why did I have the experiences that I had? Mm. So I think the first thing I read about was like, why did I have so much anxiety in the middle of the night? And I learned why that actually happened. That actually has nothing to do with me. Right. And then I learned why alcohol can cause or worsen depression mm-hmm. and that a lot of people experience suicidal thoughts because mm-hmm. the depression gets so bad mm-hmm. well that has nothing to do with me mm-hmm. and and like who i am mm-hmm. so educating myself helped me like disconnect my worth and like who i am from the stigma mm-hmm. if that makes sense yeah no and i think
0: that that knowledge in the neuroscience is really pivotal for me like understanding The mechanisms, especially with dopamine, was a really like transformational piece, but also the mental health. And what I really took away from understanding the mechanisms at play in our physiology, in our brain chemistry is like, Well, no shit, I started using alcohol as a tool. Like, like this makes perfect sense that this became something that was a coping mechanism for myself. And and when you talk about the stress of work, you know, for me it it was early motherhood. Like, of course I used this as a coping mechanism because it was managing the undiagnosed postpartum depression I didn't I know I had. It was de-stressing me after the the long day of being a stay-at-home mom. Like I think when we can start to step away from the morality of it and step away from the perceived stories of it and realize this is how this works in our bodies this is how this works in our minds in our brains and if we are lacking coping mechanisms if we are lacking a support network if we are lacking all of these other things that are going to replace or or maybe buffer us from alcohol of course we start using it of course we use it and of course it shows up in our life the way it does i really thought it was interesting that you say like I only drink one way. So what are your thoughts on moderation now?
1: Yeah. So I know some people can moderate and occasionally they will mess up and, you know, lose control or drink more than they intend. But other times they can make the choice to start and stop. Hmm. That wasn't my experience. I I only wanted to drink – until I don't know like why would I even want to stop like <laughs> that's you know I felt cracked
0: me up when you're like two two drinks is not worth my time like that's absolutely when I see somebody out in the world or even if like somebody will drink like half a glass of wine and then leave the rest even now I four and four and a half years sober even now my brain's like I don't understand that I don't get that that doesn't does not compute to my brain like how does your brain work
1: like that? yep yeah, why would you waste such mm-hmm, precious mm-hmm, liquid? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But my husband moderates, mm. and my brother moderates, and you know, literally everybody else I know mm. in real life moderates. And that was also a really important part of my journey is understanding why they can do that, mm. and because I see my husband, I live with him, I have seen him moderate for the almost ten years that we've. Been together, and I couldn't understand why he could do it, and mm. I couldn't. In what conclusion? And I had to understand. Yeah. So he can moderate for a lot of reasons um, because alcohol feels like the literally the best thing that's ever been invented hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. When I had my first sip of wine after my 90 days, I was holding in the tears. Hmm. I was so overwhelmed with mm. gratitude for this amazing wine. Mm. That's not my husband's experience. Yeah. He drinks wine and it's, you know, it's fine. It's mm-hmm. great. It's you know, he doesn't care if he has it or not. It's fine. Yeah. He feels tired and headachey when he drinks. Mm. I just feel fabulous. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, if you feel tired and headachey, you're less likely to drink every single day yeah. or drink a ton. Mm. Somehow my husband learned different coping mechanisms than me. Mm. I'm not saying that he has, you know, perfect ones. He's like the most emotionally mature person that exists. <laughs> like that's something that he's always going to work on too. But alcohol doesn't do it for him. Yeah. For me, alcohol solved all my problems. Yeah. It made everything better. Other stuff does that for him. Mm. Alcohol doesn't like fix anything. My brother's fiance, she doesn't even like the way alcohol tastes. Hmm. She doesn't like the feeling of the buzz. Hmm. So she's barely had any alcohol her entire life, Hmm. way less likely to have trouble moderating it than me. So there's a lot that goes into it. Um, I think right now, the way that I feel about it is I never learned how to cope as a kid. Hmm. I never had healthy coping uh, modeled for me. And I felt overwhelmed all the time because I didn't know how to handle anything. Mm-hmm. So I always felt overwhelmed and out of control. And everything felt like a lot, like too much for me to survive. Mm-hmm. That's how big everything felt. And I experimented with different external things to try to bring the overwhelm down. And the first mm-hmm. one was food. That was mm-hmm. my first love, both binge eating and not eating at all
0: hmm. over
1: exercising like i experimented with different ways to try to maintain like calmness mm-hmm. and stop feeling overwhelmed all the time and then i had my first real drink and all the overwhelm went away hmm. all the anger went away like all the stuff that was too much for me it became normal level and i felt that i could like deal with it now that I have alcohol. And my husband doesn't have that experience. He doesn't Mm. get super overwhelmed all the time. Some people just have like bigger feelings than other people. Mm. I read, I wish I read it recently, but I can send it to you if you're interested. But I was reading about how people have like different experiences with the same emotions. Mm. And these are two like huge extremes, but they kind of demonstrate who's going to become a a problematic drinker and who isn't. Mm. And there was one guy who was in treatment for cancer, and he was told that his cancer was gone and he was in remission and he was, you know, going to be just fine. And he had like no reaction. Hmm. He was just like, okay, thanks. Thanks for letting me know. There's a woman who lost her pen, Hmm. her favorite pen. It ruined her day, Hmm. it completely destroyed her day. And it, Affected days after that Mm. because she lost a pen. And that's not because she's a weak willed loser who can't control her emotions. It's because, you know, whatever way her brain works, Mm. losing that pen took her from zero to 1,000. She might just have a really big range of how escalated her emotions can Mm -hmm. be. And the man whose cancer went into remission might have a very narrow range for how big his emotions can be. Hmm. And the bigger that you can feel something, the more overwhelming it can be and the more out of control you can feel. And alcohol fixes that real quick. Hmm. So the man who had cancer, he didn't have big feelings. He had like no feelings at all, Mm -hmm. which was kind of the point, but he's not going to turn to anything to cope. Yeah. He doesn't need to cope. But the woman with the pen she's having a lot of trouble in her life because everything is so overwhelming for her Mm. and she can't figure out how to deal with it. And she's more likely to turn to alcohol or food. Mm. So I think there's so much like I could talk for like a thousand years about, (laughs) but it's we're all different. Yeah.
0: I, I feel like I've been on a quest more recently as I am working with more people and seeing more diverse stories, but also for my own story because my my partner also drinks. And I'm like, what makes – his brain different than my brain because he also moderates. And and actually, a, an interesting side note on that, I, I spoke with Kevin Bellick of the Sober Ginger one time and I mentioned that and he goes, but does he call it moderating? And I was like, oh, no, he doesn't. And I'm like, I wonder if your partner and your sister-in-law, like they don't, they don't call it moderating because it's not – Do they call that, it drinking? <laughs> yeah, it's just not much of that – it's not that much of an, a conscious effort to – not drink but and I'm like what what makes his brain different than mine what makes him able to do this and there is no moderation for me like there's in in there's no moderation for me in a lot of things so you know I've, I've learned more about this and it's really interesting to hear this idea of like reactivity is what i hear reactivity or like range of emotions being a marker because we also know that ranges of resilience are are some markers and 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 like the big answer is we just don't really know. We don't really know yet. But there's are starting to be more studies come out that I'm, I'm like, okay, I think we're starting to put the pieces together because it sounds like we have ranges of reactivity, emotions, things like that. But also we know resilience is a factor. And talking a little bit more about the cycle that you're talking about it, it, later on, we know that people who are more prone to experience shame are also linked to higher likelihood of challenges with substance use. So like shame markers are also another thing that we we can start to like map out these character traits and inherent resilience capabilities. And, and that's not to say – like I think that my takeaway from it is like that is not to say that people like you and me and the woman with the pen are wrong. We just have a very different experience of the world. And it's like how do we learn how to navigate the world in a way that feels tolerable without ruining our lives with a substance. So I've, I've I've got all sorts of thoughts and theories on it, but I think that's really an interesting. I don't know. I like have a question mark there.
1: <laughs> yeah, and those those markers like being prone to shame or or having low levels of resilience and being very reactive. That doesn't mean that you're a loser or a weak person. Like I think the word resilience often gets confused with strength,
0: mm, totally. and that's not
1: what it means. It mm-hmm. means that these individuals need to be identified and taught how to cope, Totally, because they need to yeah. learn how to cope. And yeah. some people learn how to cope from their parents, some people learn how to cope from you know going to therapy, some people just don't need to cope, mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Some people they're, learn they're to cope with other things. The man getting a cancer
0: diagnosis, yeah.
1: Yeah, he doesn't need to cope, he doesn't have anything to cope with. But these individuals that are very reactive and, and not very resilient when they face stress or problems or they're very emotional, very shame prone, they need intervention mm. before they turn to substances, yeah. food, sex, mm-hmm. other things like that. They need to learn how to cope. Mm. And it's okay if you never learned. It doesn't mean like yeah. something's wrong with you. We're not supposed to be born knowing how to cope. You just need to do that work. And that's what a lot of us don't realize. We think we just get sober and like, okay, that was the problem. The problem is you don't know how to cope with anything. Mm -hmm. And you have to learn. You have to learn how to handle a problem and not blame it on everybody else around you. You have to learn how to cope with stress and sadness and anger. You have to learn why you even feel angry. That was a hard one for me. Like why am I even feeling this feeling? Hmm. So yeah, I think if we could help people with those issues like when they're younger, they wouldn't go Hmm. to alcohol because they would just know. You know what's really interesting
0: is that in in my work – because so much of my work is based on Dr. Brené Brown's shame resilience theory. So resilience is inherently part of that. And what we know from Qualitative research in psychology and in this field is that things like resilience, we obviously have our inherent, like, God given resilience. We are born with genetic markers that make us an XYZ, like, degree of a, a resilient person. But resilience is also a learned skill. So it's something that, you know, of course, we have our kind of default amount of resilience. Think of it like a like a battery of hundred percent, but we can also learn this skill, and so much of it is identifying. And it's interesting. I have I have some clients that are in education, and we are talking a lot about right now, like teaching their kids in their classroom, like social emotional learning, and how much I think our generation was not really taught that. We were the generation of like new standardized tests and things like that. And I was an A plus student. I was first chair in band, and it's like. So many people like you and me aren't taught how to cope when things are difficult and things are hard. We are taught how to ace a test and we're taught how to like win the race, but we're not taught how to handle this. And I think we're starting to hope, I am hopeful that we're like starting to catch this earlier and starting to do more of this social emotional learning and teaching kids how to manage their bodies and all of this stuff. But I think there's you know a lot of space and it comes down to people teaching their own kids a lot of this stuff right now. So how did you start building some of that resilience? How did you start learning how to live in the world without this substance that was such a coping mechanism for you?
1: Yeah. So when I first stopped, I was angry all the time Mm. and I didn't know why. I was just really angry and I determined I am an angry person. Mm. That became the new identity that I lived with. I am an angry person. That's just who I am. I still kind of believe that. <laughs> <laughs> but not as deeply. We'll go as salty. I'm salty. I'm a salty mm-hmm. person. I'm kind like of salty that. too. Yeah. It just, you know, it is what it is. But <laughs> I had to learn why I was feeling that way. Why am I so angry all the time? Like I thought I would just wake up and be angry and that's just like the way that I worked. But mm. no, actually that's not how I worked. And I had to really understand what was triggering me. So what I do is when I feel angry, and I learned this from going to therapy every mm-hmm. single week mm-hmm. for over two years, but when I feel angry, I think, who hurt you? Mm. And that helps me figure out why I'm angry. Because if you don't know why you're angry, you can't do anything about it. Mm. And that's when food becomes a solution yeah. or you know, milkshakes and mm-hmm. alcohol maybe becomes a solution again. So I ask myself, who hurt you? And then I have to think about it and I can always find why I'm angry Hmm. because anger is pain's bodyguard. Hmm. Somebody hurt me somehow and I reacted by getting angry. So that has helped me a lot. And then I've identified like what triggers me One of my biggest triggers is feeling that people think I'm stupid. So Mm. I have a lot of trouble. Like when you were introing me and like your job is amazing, I'm like, no, I Mm. am stupid and you just don't know it. And Mm. we need to not talk about this. Mm. But that is because of this stupid belief that I have that like everyone's going to find out or Mm. like people are going to lose respect for me. Um, I I believe that a lot of people at work think that I'm stupid. Like I, Mm. I carry this around. And when that stupid belief gets triggered, it's like insane. It's like an Mm. explosion of anger. And I had to really understand where that belief was coming from to work on it. But it's stuff like that. So just finding like what's setting me off. Mm. Like root cause If I'm really sad, why? Yeah. So there's always a cause. And before I was just like overwhelmed and and like overexcited all the time. And like I didn't even know what to do. So I just Mm. like drank at it. And now I have to figure out like what's going on, like what's happening in your head. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know why you're feeling that way, you're never going to know how to cope with it because you don't know what's wrong. Mm-hmm. So that was a big part of it for me. And then understanding too. So like my two most common negative emotions, which probably everyone experiences are anger and sadness. Those are mm-hmm. my those are my big two. And I understand now that anger is a very... Active, energetic emotion where sadness is the opposite. Mm -hmm. So, when I'm angry, a lot of times we feel that we have to keep it in and control it Mm. and make it go away. And we can't be angry because everyone's going to think, you know, we're a huge bitch and all this stuff. And I have learned like, get the anger out of your body, do something with it, go to the gym and lift the heaviest thing that you can find, go on a rage walk. Stomp around your neighborhood and listen to super angry music. I rage clean the kitchen. Oh my so God. I take take it out on the dishes. I love this I, concept. If I'm at <laughs> If I'm at work, I go in the lab and I'm just like cleaning everybody's stuff, and I'm the messiest person in the lab. So if I'm like cleaning everybody's stuff, people know, like, just mm-hmm. she's just leave her alone. She's good. She's on a cleaning spree. Mm-hmm. But you got to do something. If you're angry, when you Mm. try to stuff it down, that's when it gets out of control and you Mm -hmm. have to drink. Mm -hmm. And with sadness, I don't try to do anything. Mm. Before I would feel sad and I'd be like, you're so unproductive, you're such a loser. Why are you wasting the day? Like, look at this. And then surprise, I'd wake up the next day sad. Mm. Instead, when I feel sad, I give myself permission To chill on the couch and watch The Bachelor, or play Mm -hmm. video games and not move for the whole day, or go on a little walk at night. Get something that makes me really happy for dinner. I just do nice stuff for myself. Get a Mm. pedicure, take a bath. Like little stuff that doesn't require energy. So I'm learning the difference between these emotions and like what they require and stuffing them down or trying to change them is where we get stuck in these loops yeah. of drinking, you know, and then being like, why am I such a loser mm. <laughs> every day? Yeah. And then you drink again over mm. and over. Mm.
0: I like wrote Rage Walkdown <laughs> because I love that. And I actually saw on your bio that you have a rage playlist and I'm like, I'm putting the pieces together now. I'm like, all right, I'm going to go listen to Jill's rage playlist and I'm going to go stomp around my neighborhood and get it out. But so much of what that makes me think of is like our window of tolerance. Are you familiar with that theory? No. Okay. So our window of tolerance. When we think about this idea of extreme emotions, like anger and sadness, we think of like that is our stress response. That's our physiological stress response, which is another way of saying our fight, flight, freeze, or fawn response. So that's the part that says like we are unsafe for some reason and so we're going to experience this feeling. And like you said, anger is the high one. So we call that hyper arousal. Sadness is the low ones. We call it hypoarousal. And in between these experiences, we have what we call our window of tolerance. So this is a podcast. This is not the best place to explain this. (laughs) But in this window of tolerance, this is the window within which we can experience these feelings and still be okay. To experience these feelings and not need to go get outside of ourselves, not need to numb, not make, make them go away. And when you're talking about pen lady, it made me think of it too. Like, Yes, My pen lady has a very narrow window of tolerance. So pen lady is either really high or really low. And the window within which she can experience is really narrow. And, and, and so when we think about this and, we, and I'm like putting all these pieces together, I'm like, I need to go do a scientific study. <laughs> but when I think about this idea of reactivity and much like how resilience is a learned experience, our window of tolerance, which is another way of thinking about reactivity, our window of tolerance can change so we can intentionally expand that window we can intentionally make it bigger we can also make it smaller usually unintentionally through lessening our resilience so i'm like this whole time i'm like okay i see i see jill's like up and down window of tolerance but but i really like what you said about like when i am angry i have to do something with it i have to get it out i have to process this and Holding this idea of like it's not a bad emotion. It's just an emotion. It's just a feeling. And so much of this, we get wrapped up in labeling it good or bad or experiencing it as something we should or shouldn't feel. and 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 the reality is it's just a deeply human experience. It's what we all experience and the way our brains work. I think if we could, like have an inside look at what everybody's brain looks like, we would all realize that we're thinking the same thing. We're all having very similar experiences or this idea of being found out like i'm I'm afraid of being found out every day. But, like gone gone totally into left field here but one thing before we run out of time i really wanted to touch on is you talk about this cycle of drink hate yourself drink again cycle and i think that's going to be something that really really resonates with people so tell me more about that theory how it looked like for you and how you have worked with that idea and changed that in your life
1: yeah so the way it looked is i would get home from work and I would drink and I would be happy and everything was good and I was having fun and, you know, I felt good about myself. And then um, the night would kind of end and I would go to sleep and I would wake up at 3 a.m. and I would hate myself. Why can you never control yourself? Why are you such a loser? And then the next morning I would wake up do the same thing. Why are Mm. you such a loser? Why do you always do this? And, you know, I would do that all morning. And then around lunchtime, when I started feeling better, Mm. I would start bargaining oh, well, you know, you didn't really mean that you were never going to drink again. Like, its I think it's okay if you have wine today. Like, it's Thursday, you know? It's thirsty Thursday. Mm. Like, I could find a reason for it. Like, it's Wine Tuesday. down Wednesday,
0: thirsty Thursday. Yeah. Yeah. Feel good Friday. Got them all.
1: Yeah. It's Monday. It's been mm-hmm. such a hard
0: day. It's The Bachelor. We—that's a whole other yes. day. I could talk Bachelor theories with you. <laughs> I couldn't watch The Bachelor for two whole years after I quit drinking because I had so – deeply associated Mondays,
1: drinking all the wine. Yes. I had so much trouble. So yeah. Oh, it's The Bachelor tonight. Like, Mm -hmm. how can you really not drink when The Bachelor Mm -hmm. is on? Any kind of reason. And I would bargain and then I would talk myself into it, which was not hard. Mm -hmm. And then I would plan to drink, fantasize, and then I would drink and be happy again Mm. and life is good and I don't hate myself and all my problems are better. And that would last, you know, maybe like two to three hours. And then I would be right back Hmm. into hate. You're a loser. You're the worst. Why do you always do this? Over and over and over. And the reason it's a cycle is what you were saying in the beginning is it deteriorates your self-worth. It just destroys your self-esteem. And when you break your promise to yourself every single day or frequently, if you weren't a daily drinker like me, if you're frequently letting yourself down by saying you're not going to drink or you're only going to drink this amount, but then you drink a thousand drinks again like you always do, you think you're a loser that can't do anything. And then that spills over everywhere else. If you have any kind of goal – You have no confidence that you'll achieve it. Mm. I used to set goals in my head. I wouldn't even get the thought out before I interrupted myself and was Mm. like, yeah, right. You're not going to do that. And it just – it impacts your whole life. All of a sudden, you have no confidence or self-esteem in any area of life Mm. because you keep breaking this promise to yourself and you determine it's got to be your fault. Mm. You're the reason that you can't moderate. It's because you're a weak-willed loser. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the cycle. And it's really hard to step out of it. And we think like the solution is just drink less. Yeah. If I can just moderate, then I will feel better about myself. Yeah. And that just you know keeps us going and keeps us in the cycle. And you mm-hmm. have to treat the one part that seems so good. It seemed that 22 hours of my day – were miserable every day. And I only had these two really good hours mm. because of wine. But really, it was those two hours that were making the 22 hours after it miserable. Huh. And yeah, and you have yeah. to you have to realize that. And that's what real freedom is, realizing that it's the alcohol and the drinking that is causing all these other hmm. things to occur. And it's not that drinking is your best friend and it's helping you. And your whole life just happens to suck. <laughs> <laughs> your life sucks because of this other thing that you're doing all the time that makes you feel horrible about yourself.
0: I think if I had heard you say that to me five years ago, you would have changed my life with this idea of it's not the 22 hours of your life that are terrible, it's the two hours that you're drinking. And, and it, it, that's an adjacent thought to so many thoughts that I already knew and had already organized in my brain and still couldn't make a change. But I think that one would have, like I kind of have chills right now. That was really good and really powerful to think about like the 22 hours that feel miserable are as a result of this one substance. You know, it's interesting. I, I know you're on TikTok too. And um, I got a hilarious comment the other day on TikTok that was like, it was a video about pink wine and how it's being marketed at women. And like it was all these pink whatever. And some stranger on the internet Commented, <laughs> she goes, just stop drinking. And I was like, cool, thanks, Karen, super helpful. I um, already did that, but thank you for your super helpful tip. And I think that's another thought that's very similar to the like, I'm just going to moderate. Like, I'm going to moderate. It's going to make me a good person. I'm going to do this. But I really truly felt that experience of continuously letting myself down. And continuously disappointing myself and, and being unable to keep promises to myself. And I think there's a lot to be said about what that does to your self worth and how you feel inside.
1: Oh, yeah. It's. <laughs> I
0: have two more questions and we're going to definitely go okay. over time, but this is so good today. And I, I want to ask you first, what does sober powered mean to you? So
1: it's very similar to it's like the. What happens after you get out of the cycle? Um, when I stopped drinking, I realized all of these beliefs that I had about myself were not true. I thought I was a suicidal person. Mm-hmm. Turns out I'm actually not. Um, I thought that I was a loser who would never, you know accomplish anything. No, actually, that's not true. Mm-hmm. I thought like all of these things, I thought I was the worst wife ever. Mm-hmm. I thought that I would never like my body. And all of these things that I told myself, surprise, they're not true. Mm. And that's all because I got sober. Nothing good could happen in my life while alcohol was still in my life. And that's Mm. why the quote, addiction is giving up everything for one thing and Mm. recovery is giving up one thing for everything. Mm. It's it's the truth. It's really the truth. And yeah, and then you take all of this self-confidence that you're building. Because just like every single time you let yourself down by saying you're going to moderate and then you don't, every day you don't drink, you become more confident. You build more self-esteem. And then every time you do something else that You didn't think you could do, you build more self-esteem and that Mm. becomes a loop. And Mm. you just feel like so confident about yourself. And where that led to was I can do like anything I want Mm. if I want to do it enough. And that's what being sober powered is about. Like that all has occurred because I did this one thing that unlocked my potential Mm. and really just like freed me from Mm. being in a cage where like I couldn't do anything. But- Yeah, I really like the idea of
0: power and sobriety together. And one of my group programs is called Powerful AF. And I think so much of what I was told before I quit drinking is that the line from AA, like of being powerless over alcohol, this idea of being powerless was really the message I got about people who can't, quote unquote, can't drink or don't drink, being powerless Against alcohol, in 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 my own version of sobriety, what I've really found is I feel very powerful for having removed this substance that is very socialized. It's very accepted. It's counterculture to be a person who doesn't drink. I feel very powerful in that. So I love this idea of of being superpowered. Like it's it, and it also sounds kind of like superpower, which my three year old would love. He's very into superheroes right now. But I think it is a superpower to be able to live in the world and live without this one thing that everybody else does and is so common and is so socially acceptable. And all of the things that it gives us on the other side make it so so worth it. So I really I love that concept. Thank you. All right. The last question I ask on every podcast is if your story were to be published, what would it be titled and what kind of book would it be?
1: That's an easy one. It would be called Sober Powered. <laughs> and this is a book that has been in my head for a long time. Mm. But it would be really similar to my show, where it's like, I think it would be part memoir, but part, you know, science, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I would use my experience to support like the facts that I'm trying to explain. So, an easy one is like feeling suicidal, and then magically that feeling disappeared when I stopped mm-hmm. drinking. I would, you know, explain what happened to me, and then teach people why that happened. Yeah. So that that is the book that will come out in I don't know a few years. Yeah, a the few thought years. is in my head.
0: <laughs> That's okay. it so far. Okay. I totally dig this book because so much of what changed my own experience and what helped me get and stay sober was the science of it and learning what was happening in my brain and understanding like this makes so much sense. Of course I had this experience. Of course this is what happened because this is the thing that we're putting in our bodies. And I think that power or that knowledge is so powerful and that has the ability to really Change someone's life. So sober powered. I look forward to reading to it, reading it. We will share it with the world when it's out there. And I'm going to hold you to that because I want to read that book. Well, Jill, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your story and allowing somebody else to be seen and to see themselves in your story, because I know that there are going to be so many people who hear what you've shared today that are really going to resonate with it. So if our people want to find you, how do they find you? What do you have going on in your world? How can we connect with you?
1: So if you search Sober Powered, you'll find me everywhere. If you're listening to this Mm -hmm. years into the future, you may find my book on Amazon. Um, Hell yeah. But for now, (laughs) that's my podcast, my website, my Instagram, my Facebook group. So if you search for that, you'll definitely find me.
0: Beautiful. And any exciting like upcoming programs or podcasts you've got coming out?
1: So I am going to grad school um, to get my master's in addiction counseling.
0: Cool. Very cool. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll keep that on our radar for whatever comes from that. Yeah. Beautiful. All right, my friend. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time and your story. And I know that somebody out there needed to hear your story today. Thank you so much for listening to Sober Stories with me, Beth Bowen, and our guest, Jill Teets. Never you worry. Immediately after this conversation, Jill and I scheduled a time for us to talk on her podcast all about The Window of Tolerance. Stay tuned for that. We laughed about how much the both of us can geek out about the brain stuff. It really impacted the way both of us perceive alcohol, our own use, and I'm really glad we got to have that conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to us if you took a second to rate and review Sober Stories wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us tell more stories, reach more people, change more lives, one good review at a time. And if you had a big aha moment from today's show, we'd love it if you shared it with us on social media. You can find us at We Are Sober Stories on most platforms. Tag us so we can hear your big takeaways And you never know when we'll send a little thank you. I also want to thank our team here at Sober Stories, Alexis Archuleta on the mixing and podcast genius side. Callie Williams is our community engagement lead. Daniela Marty for our graphic design and every single person who has a hand in what we are building. Until next week, my friends.